it's enough that we talk about our dilemmas and problems among ourselves. It's important for us to have more of a civic engagement with, within the communities that we live in and kind of let them know who we are and what we go through and how uh, resilient we are. This is what's amazing about the Assyrians, our resilience and our will to fight and stand for, uh, for truth, for truth. Lama and Shlomo, everyone, and welcome to episode number 111 of the Assyrian Podcast with Dr. Ramina Jaju Frindrich. Dr. Jaju Frindrich is a retired rheumatologist residing in Phoenix, and for the past 15 years, she has been a partner at Arizona Arthritis and Rheumatology Associates, which is also Arizona's largest rheumatology practice. She has also part-owned and conducted numerous research studies at Arizona Arthritis and Rheumatology Research. Not only will you get to hear about Dr. Jaju's medical background, but you will also learn about her work within the Assyrian community. And just to give you a quick background, Dr. Jaju was the medical editor of the Assyrian Star magazine, and she also volunteered, taught, and ran St. Peter Assyrian Academy at St. Peter Assyrian Church of the East in Glendale, Arizona for several years. Her scope of work has also included producing pieces for various Assyrian media, publishing articles, and currently serving as a strategic consultant and chairwoman of SAFO Center Arizona Chapter, where she and her team worked tirelessly to help pass the Assyrian Genocide Remembrance Day Proclamation in the House of Representatives for the state of Arizona. The SAFO Center has been doing remarkable work in Arizona and worldwide to bring awareness to the Assyrian Genocide And in this episode, you'll hear more about their projects. I highly encourage you to look into the work that they do. And this August 7th, which is Assyrian Martyrs Day, let us commit ourselves to remembering the atrocities against Assyrians and the lives lost so that we can work towards a future that not only never forgets, but always endures. Before we get into this week's interview, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, if you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. Lastly, the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now, here is Dr. Ramina Jaju Frendrick. Dr. Ramina, thank you very much for joining us on the Assyrian Podcast. I know during this time we are both living in Arizona, but however, just for um, COVID-19 precautions, we are doing this interview virtually. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule to to meet with us. Thank you so much, Nanarta. I'm honored and it's my pleasure to be on Assyrian Podcast. I've been so looking forward to this uh, interview and I have my cup of coffee here and I'm good to go. So thank you for this opportunity and hello to everybody. So let's go ahead and get started, Dr. Amina, if you wouldn't mind just telling us 
where were you born? Um, how was your childhood growing up? And we'll, we'll start off from there. Sounds good. So I was born in Tehran, Iran. I was born to uh, Assyrian parents, David and Shamiran uh, Jaju, and I was born in Tehran. And I grew up in Tehran, Iran, until I was 16 years old. And uh, then at the age of 16, I moved to Australia. I also, um, of course, had my you know, younger brother with me and uh, my grandmother. We all moved to Australia, which we'll get into that story in a little bit. But uh, in Australia, I finished high school. And then, um, and then I went to medical school. Yeah, um, from there, I uh, moved to, uh, in 1996, I moved to the um, United States. Okay. Uh, and I've been here since 1996, so 24 years. So uh, in a nutshell, I'm not, I, I, I'm both Australian and American, but now I, I have to say I'm a little bit more American than Australian, but 100% <laughs> Assyrian. <laughs> there you go. Amen to that. So you remember growing up in Tehran. So, so you said you left when you were 16. So how, how was it like living there? And why, why did you decide, why did you and your family decide to leave? I remember when I was about 10 years old, now I'm really giving away my age, uh, about 10 years old, <laughs> around 1977, 78, um, the um, Islamic revolution took place uh, in Tehran, well, in Iran, and uh, the schools closed for about a year. And I used to attend to the uh, attend this Assyrian school, uh, maybe you guys have heard of it, it was called um, Madrash Shushan, or... Um, Madrasa Susan in Farsi, mm -hmm. or um, or Susan School in English, right? And uh, the school had to close. It was an uh, it was a co-ed Assyrian school. Wonderful, wonderful place to be at. Uh, it was under the uh, leadership of Mrs. Gracie Atanus, amazing, amazing um, uh, principal. Uh, but, uh, you know, the school closed and the revolution took place and life became gradually more difficult for uh, Christian minorities, uh, even Jewish minorities, uh, Baha'is. Mm -hmm. um, Baha'is were being actively persecuted. Our neighbors went missing. Our pediatricians, uh, I remember our pediatrician, I believe he was Jewish, and um, he. I think he had some issues with his um, clinic being raided by the um, military guards, moral guards, they, they would call them pastor. So life was um, became gradually more difficult. Uh, the country became more uh, radical uh, in some ways, uh, and uh, strict Islamic rules were being implemented in schools. And uh, and then the war between Iran and Iraq broke out. We had to uh, kind of live through the war for about I don't know five six years. Mm -hmm. And um, my younger brother was approaching the military age. I'm not sure whether it was 16 or 18 and at the time. So um, my family decided that um, there wasn't much of a future for us there. Students who were already enrolled in university, if they were a Christian, uh, they were not let back in or they had to uh, take uh, Islamic studies to mm -hmm. uh, qualify for university. So the future looked really bleak. So um, we reached out to some of our distant relatives in Australia and thankfully, you know, thankfully they sponsored us. And so we ended up in Australia on a tourist visa. And uh, the minute we got there, we said, 
wait a minute, we're not really tourists. <laughs> <laughs> we're not here to just stay for two months. Can you please give us a home? So we, we changed our status. We applied for a change in status. And within a year, uh, our entire family were accepted. And I think within two years, we became Australian citizens. The rest of your teens and college years were in, uh, in Australia. What was that like? I mean, I know you, you went to medical school, so kind of guide us through that, through that route and how you decided to make that decision to go into medical school. Okay, so, um, you know, when, when we got to Australia, I was 16 and my brother was, uh, I believe he was 11. It was really tough because we didn't speak much English. My dad did because he had worked with, uh, with Americans and the British uh, back in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in banking. Uh, my mother mostly was a, a homemaker, so she didn't speak a whole lot of English either. We weren't completely illiterate, but we just knew very basic, very basic sentences. So we uh, went to uh, English as a second language classes with other immigrants. And there were immigrants from Middle East, from Asia, from Israel. So all kinds of interesting uh, kids our age were in ESL class for three months. And then, um, and then I was placed in good old Fairfield high school. (laughs) So for those people who are not familiar with the, with Sydney, Fairfield was the Assyrian hub. It still is right. It's little Assyria. That's what they should call it. (laughs) And that was so nice because I actually found some of my old friends from uh, Madras Tushan from back in Tehran. So they kind of helped me out. It really was. It really was. It made the transition a little bit easier. Yeah, I think I joined in 10th grade. And then finally, I graduated from high school. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I knew that I wasn't very good at language arts, (laughs) English being my third language. The humanity line of education wasn't for me. And I loved science. So really, I chose um, medicine by default. It was Uh a process of elimination. And I remember when I told my parents that I want to try for medical school, my mother almost uh, had a panic attack. <laughs> she said, you know how hard that is to get into. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm going to give it a try. We'll see what happens. So I got into medical school at University of New South Wales in 1988. Uh, and it was a six-year course. Uh, of course, it was difficult. I was still using my dictionary quite a bit throughout medical mm-hmm. school. And I was devastated because the year I joined medical school in Ninorta, they changed the uh, degree from a five-year degree to a six-year degree. And I was just oh. devastated. I thought this is, this One is whole bad. Year. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'm going to be an old maid by the time I graduate. <laughs> So anyway, but the saving grace was that they added an additional degree. So I got three degrees there. They're a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Medicine, and Bachelor of Surgery. And then I, um, you know, I graduated from medical school and, uh, and then I did my internship. Mm-hmm. A little bit of internship and some oh. um, residency. I was, I was reading somewhere that you were the first Assyrian to go to medical school in, in Australia. That's the rumor I heard at the time. (laughs) And uh, yes, and back in the 80s, uh, the Assyrian community in Australia was relatively new. I think the community dates back to 
the 60s, maybe 50s, 1950s. Uh, but it was really uh, after the Iran-Iraq war where the, you know, the main uh, migration started. So okay. it was still a fairly new community. And uh, also bear in mind, we really didn't have social media or internet or any way of knowing for a fact whether Romina was the first Assyrian ever <laughs> to <laughs> enter medical school. I'm sure that, you know, I, I honestly don't know, but that's what yeah. I was told. So so I, I took it and ran with it. <laughs> there you go. But of course, if somebody wants to challenge it, I would gladly give up that claim. <laughs> Uh, and since then, fortunately, there there have been more uh, Assyrian uh, students that have entered, I, I believe, medical school. And then uh, some foreign medical graduates also have gone to Australia and established very successful medical practices in geriatrics, in surgery, primary care. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, the Assyrian community in Australia has come a long way and yeah. they are thriving. They're amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think... All, um, all other regions, all countries should look up to their establishments of you know, the school, the colleges, pretty much everything. That's right. That's right. 100%. And, uh, and, you know, I still go back to Norta. I go back and visit my family there, and it's always so much fun. I love them to pieces, and it's just every time I go there, I get energized, and I become more interested in my community and I see, you know, us living in Arizona, I see that uh, similar um, growth in the um, Assyrian community in Arizona. And mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, we're on the right path here. It's, it's really something to be proud of. That's great to hear. That is really great to hear. So you went to medical school. What was your line of, what did you choose to focus on in medical school? Um, you know, back in medical school, I um, I really loved anatomy, and uh, but I very very early on, I have to tell you a funny story. Very early on, I found out that I can't be a surgeon because uh, when I was uh, in my final year of medical school, I was actually doing a surgical rotation for the first time. And uh, I got into an operating room. I was all covered up with gowns and masks. And, and um, the operation was an ingrown toenail. And as soon as the surgeon cut into it, I passed out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I knew early on I couldn't be a surgeon, but I didn't know what I okay. wanted to do. <laughs> okay, so scratch that off. <laughs> yes, scratch that out. Anyway, so I finished school. And when I did my internship, I was more uh, interested in uh, primary care. Mm -hmm. And I worked as a um, primary care physician uh, part-time at the same time as I was doing my um, later on residency in Australia. And then life brought me to United States in 96. I took all of my exams. Uh, they're called the uh, United States Medical Licensing Exam, USMLEs. There were three exams that I had to pass. And uh, I ended up in um, Connecticut. For, uh, re uh, for internship. So I had to do the internship again in Connecticut in internal medicine. Long story short, uh, I spent some time in Connecticut and then New Jersey and then back in Connecticut. And during that time, lo and behold, I met my husband, <laughs> Carl. He was um, a year behind in training. Um, we're both the same age, but he was a year behind. And he always tells this funny, tells this funny story how, you know, how I pursued him, but 
No, it was really the other way around. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, we ended up getting engaged and uh, we got married in the Assyrian Church of the East Church in Connecticut. And I wanna, I forget what it was called, but we were married by Father Gabriel, Kashai uh, Gebi. And we also had an American priest. So we had two priests marry us. Father, I think his name was Father Jim Crawley. Um, so we got married in Connecticut and we moved to Boston. And in Boston, uh, my husband started his specialty training in anesthesiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. But I wanted to do internal medicine, primary care, and the, the group that I joined, the day I arrived there, they told me that they, their intensive care unit specialist had uh, basically left that position. So they didn't have an ICU doctor. So imagine being a fresh, uh, freshly trained internist and <laughs> you want to go into primary care, but instead you end up running the intensive care unit oh, wow. <laughs> at a hospital. Wow. It was pretty stressful and I just couldn't do it. It was, uh, it wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, it turned me off internal medicine too. Um, so my husband said, Romina, you've always liked anatomy. Um, you've liked rheumatology. So why don't you apply for rheumatology mm -hmm. fellowship? Mm -hmm. And by the time I applied almost well, really, all of the positions were taken. And we're talking about Boston. Boston is the mecca of medicine. There are a lot of fellowship training positions there if you apply on time. But I was so late um, that the early hospital that hadn't filled its position, or they had, but they then the person who took the position uh, changed their mind, was um, New England Medical Center, Tufts New England Medical Center. So I applied and I got it. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a pretty amazing uh, program. I got to work with, with uh, um, some really intelligent, smart doctors um, for three years. I worked with uh, Dr. Bess Dawson-Hughes, who is involved with um, USDA. Also, Dr. Um, Alan Steer, who was the uh, person who discovered Lyme disease. Um, so we had a lot of referrals for Lyme disease. So it was just fascinating. And then, wow. and then we finished up in Boston and came to, came to Connecticut. No, sorry, to um, Phoenix. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. I, I had read somewhere that you were in some different like um, trial studies that you led some different studies with rheumatology. Was that during your time in Boston or here in Phoenix? Uh, that was uh, when I was in Boston, because when you do fellowship, um, mm -hmm. you have to, you're required to do research. And uh, if you can, uh, if your research is good enough, it, it gets published. So I was uh, uh, doing my research with, with uh, Dr. Best Dawson Hughes on the effects of diet on bone density and the calcium and the protein balances. And in the long run, it would have um, connected to osteoporosis the impact on osteoporosis, whether we uh, eat more vegetables, is that good for uh, prevention of osteoporosis or whether we should be eating more protein like animal proteins. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting study and I think it, it was published in the Journal of Endocrinology. Mm -hmm. It's been so long now. We moved here in 2004. So yeah, I got a publication out of it, but I knew that I didn't want to uh, being academics, I always wanted to see patients and yeah. was very passionate about rheumatology. And for 
people, there are people who don't know what rheumatology is, if I could just uh, expand a little bit. Absolutely, yes, I was just going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> so rheumatology is the study of uh, immune system, rare uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, and uh, the musculoskeletal system of the body, right? Mm -hmm. So our focus is on uh, bone and joint diseases, different types of arthritis, um, different types of muscle diseases. And um, generally, uh, these are conditions that can affect multiple organs. So they're not just limited to um, bone and joints. They can affect the internal organs as well. So they can be, if not treated, they can be life-threatening. Mm -hmm. And they can be pretty complex. So usually when a patient ends up seeing a rheumatologist, it's because they've seen multiple other specialties and uh, they can't figure out what's going on and uh, they come to us and we diagnose them with the autoimmune diseases like some people might have heard the word lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, vasculitis, mm -hmm. encephalitis. These are different types of inflammation, inflammatory conditions in the body. Got it. Um, so it is just fascinating and there's been so much research into these uh, conditions and so much progress in terms mm -hmm. of treatment. Wow, that's really yeah. fascinating. That's interesting. So during yeah. your time, I didn't mention this before when we were going over your time in Australia, but did were you, I know you're very involved in the Assyrian community here in Arizona. Were you as involved in when you were in Tehran, in Australia, in Boston, Connecticut, all these other places that you that you <laughs> You know, uh, back in um, Austra uh, back in Iran, I was just a kid, and we were in a different situation. Mm -hmm. uh, we were at war. We were scared. But my parents always instilled this um, love for Assyrians, love for my community. Uh, so that was there. And um, they back in Madrasa Shushan, uh, they really taught us Assyrian really well. And we could read and write. Majority of the kids that graduated uh, from that school, and at some point there were maybe a thousand students enrolled, uh, they could read and write uh, in Assyrian fluently. So that instilled that love for uh, Assyrians um, back then. When I went to Australia, because of the transition, I wasn't able to be as involved, mm -hmm. right? Because I was in medical school, I would have to spend three hours a day commuting back and forth to the university wow. so it was really difficult but we were always uh, attending church and uh, going to parties and gatherings mm -hmm. and the same thing happened when I came to the states but even though I wasn't as involved but I always sought the Assyrian um, communities where I lived so I found the Assyrian community in Connecticut Mm -hmm. Then we went to Boston. We found the I found the Assyrian community in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. There's a mm -hmm. small, very tight knit community. Are you familiar yes. with them? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome people, and I yeah. love them. And I ended up being neighbors with uh, one of my uh, closest friends from uh, Tehran. Her name is uh, Dr. Nika Daniel. She's currently, I believe, she's an assistant professor at Harvard true gem. So we were we were neighbors, uh, friends for four years. I got to meet uh, Dr. Eden Nabi. I, I don't know, a lot of people know about her, an amazing woman. And she uh, kind of recruited me to be the health correspondent for Assyrian Star magazine. 
chocolate author. Uh, and I have a few few of these magazines right here in front of me just to jot my memory. <laughs> and uh, my job was to write a brief article uh, on um, any medical condition or recruit uh, physicians that would write the, the health corner. So, you know, in front of me, I'm holding the the issue from summer of 2003 mm -hmm. that... Listen, listen to how relevant this is. This was written by Dr. Rahman Solkhah, a medical doctor, and he was uh, the director of Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York. Mm -hmm. He was also at the time assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, and he wrote, the topic he wrote about was post-traumatic stress disorder and learned helplessness in the Assyrian community. Wow. How amazing is that? It was a short article, but but we had some really good topics to write about until until I came to mm -hmm. to Phoenix because as we figured, you know, we're tired of shoveling snow in Boston, so let's find the hottest city. <laughs> find the hottest city with a decent sized Assyrian community. So we came to Phoenix. <laughs> On Sunday, we were talking and you mentioned that you were part of the Australian Student Association or Academic Association in Australia. You know, Minota, uh, I was briefly involved in founding that uh, organization, but really I didn't play a major role. Because, And I'll tell you why. When I was in medical school, the Assyrian Australian Association which is an amazing organization in Australia, and I think they still, they're still around, um, decided to offer scholarships to Assyrian students who enter universities. So back then, I think the first prize was $600. So I was awarded the $600, and it was a lot of money. I was so happy because we were refugees and didn't have a whole lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but it was just so inspiring. And then uh, the scholarship was in the name of a, a Syrian author by the name Rabbi Nimrod Simono. It was okay. called Rabbi Nimrod Simono Scholarship. And it was awarded annually to uh, students for the duration of their uh, degree. So if, if it was a three-year degree, they would get it three years in a row. Uh, oh mine was a six-year degree, so <laughs> I was lucky. I got it for six years. <laughs> they were so kind. <laughs> They were so kind, but of course we were expected to, you know, pay it forward and as yeah. we should always. And that was their investment in the youth. And the other uh, nice thing about it was that we were asked to write to Rabbi Nimrod Simono to write to him because he used to live in Iran, and he was so appreciative. And I would, I would uh, attempt at writing in Assyrian, so I, I wrote my letters in Assyrian to him, so he would answer them. And then he would have another page of corrections. <laughs> <laughs> that was believe it or not, believe it or not, my parents still kept those letters as mementos. It's amazing. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's how um, the because of the uh, uh, this association, the the college students kind of started getting together, and they thought, hey, this is a good idea to for us to have an actually like a student association, just like we have here in Arizona, we have yeah. the Assyrian Student Association. I was um, briefly involved, uh, the president was uh, 
this uh, friend uh, by the name Edson Ishu. He still lives in Australia, I believe. And then more qualified people took over, like uh, Miss Susie David and her brother, Mr. Um, Fred David. And I don't remember everybody, uh, some other uh, friend, Essie David, they took over and they really made it into what it is today. And they changed the name to the Assyrian Australian Academic Society. I believe that's what it's called. Yes. And they're still very active. Perfect. Wow. So let's jump into your work here in Arizona. You are the St. Peter's Assyrian Church School director. So tell us about how you got involved with that and what was your role in that and what changes you implemented in the Sunday school program. This Assyrian school was really um, the apple of my eye. I was so proud of it and I'm still very proud of it. So when I came here in 2004, I was pregnant with my son, Adam. He was born here in Scottsdale. And we had one church, the Assyrian Church of the East, had one church, if you remember, in the North, I think it was on, in Glendale on Dunlap and 35th Avenue. And when I arrived, that church had, uh, the community had outgrown the, the, the church. So mm-hmm. they needed a be- bigger location. So uh, we relocated to a um, larger location, the St. Peter Cathedral, which is on um, 63rd and Bell, right? 63rd, yeah. 63rd and Bell in Glendale. And uh, that church came with a school building. It had mm-hmm. nine classes. And I was, it also came with a cry room, which was a, a, such a blessing except that my three-year-old boy wouldn't sit still in the cry room. <laughs> I don't think any two, three, four-year-old will sit in the cry, in the cry room. <laughs> he was so energetic, Minorta. <laughs> um, he still is. So I talked to my friend and I said, could I please put him in uh, Sunday school in the classes? She said, well, he's young, but yeah. if you want to, you have to sit with him and volunteer. So that's how I started in okay. uh, Sunday school as a volunteer, then I kind of uh, became promoted, kind of promoted to the teacher's aid. And then I became a teacher very briefly. And then a few years into it, this was in 2011, the school building was uh, rented out to a charter school for a year. Oh. And at the same time, the director of the school um, retired. So we didn't want the kids to disperse and we didn't want to lose the Sunday school. So I offered to run the school, Rabbi Asha Andu's um, blessing and Marapram's blessing to run the school, but only temporarily until they find somebody because I did not see myself qualified to do it. Uh-huh. So um, we held classes in the church cafeteria in the hall for a year. And then the uh, charter school moved somewhere else. So we got the building back Mm -hmm. and then we just worked on the school and we tried to make it better, uh, implemented a lot of different things, different curriculum, website, uh, annual functions. Uh, I could go into detail, but it would take forever. Talent shows, bringing academics or uh, businessmen, entrepreneurs, artists as career day guests. Uh, and uh, the uh, the beauty of it was that we got better every year and the school grew from 
I believe 87 students to about 180 something, 183 students. Wow. Yeah, we were holding classes. We changed the name of the school to St. Peter Assyrian Academy. And we went from about five or six teachers to a total of 16 teachers and teachers' aides, IT staff, a teacher's assistant, uh, a um, uh, assistant principal, and I was the principal. So we grew and we progressed. And I did that for about six years. And uh, uh, and I and I had to, for other reasons, uh, personal reasons, I had to stop doing that because uh, my work schedule just got too hectic. Uh, Deacon Sam Abraham took over and has been doing a fabulous job. And, you know, now they have a library with over 70 Assyrian books. The curriculum has been continued. And, then, and they've become far more technology savvy. So they do things far more efficiently than I used to do it. And, uh, you know, the whole story of this uh, Sunday school was uh, summarized and uh, written about by uh, uh, Dr. Madeline Davis Muratkhan in her periodical, which uh, I think it's a quarterly, actually, mm-hmm. that comes out online. It's an amazing publication. It's called mm-hmm. um, Rays of Literature or Simcha um, Saprayuta. It's an Assyrian. And uh, a whole article was uh, written about just our little... Sunday school in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Ninorta, what was amazing was that I felt at the time that maybe I could bring something to the school and um, and really help transform it. And that happened with the help of the clergy and with the help of the parents. Really, the parents were so supportive and with the help of the teachers. But what really was more important to me was my own spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a whole nother <laughs> session we can talk about, but it was just amazing that, you know, how I um, found salvation and I accepted Jesus as my savior. And it was just, just truly amazing. And it continues to be amazing. Wow. And I'm very happy for the school and, and how it's being run right now. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I see, I go to church on Sundays and I see the kids come in and they're all dressed in their uniforms and like, it's like a military. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is really awesome. I do have a question that came in from one of our uh, listeners um, and they're asking, what's a successful model for starting a fully operational Assyrian school in the U.S.? something similar to Armenian school or Hebrew school? It's a good one. Um, to be quite honest, Ninorta, I, uh, I really don't know. I had heard that a uh, charter school has been started and it's been running up uh, really well operationally in Detroit, right? It's uh, Keys Grace yes. School. Uh, I'm not in contact with them. And running a charter school is very, starting it and running it is a very different story to running a Sunday school uh, or Bible study classes. These are two different processes. Uh, That's something that's way beyond my pay grade. I don't know, but it's clearly being done. And my understanding when I was reading about Keys Grace School is that it took uh, people eight years of planning to get there, seven or eight years. I wish, I wish I had a good answer, but it's definitely something that we need. We did have um, a podcast interview with the, uh, the founder of 
Keys Grace um, Academy. It was episode number 14 with Nathan Kalasho. So if anybody wants to look that up, they can listen to that about the charter school in Detroit. A couple of episodes ago, we did have Asher Swarishu on the podcast. I don't know if you listened to that episode or not, but he is uh, from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada. And he runs the Sunday, he helps run the Sunday school there as well. And what he was saying that of their structure is they go to church, like they have their every Sunday, once a week, it's from 9am till 3pm. So they do the church, they go through the Raza. So let's say nine to 12. And then from 12 to three, it's a Syrian class. What are your thoughts on that process versus the, what a lot of churches here in the, in the US do is um, the parents go to the Raza from nine Mm -hmm. till 11 the kids are in the in the class and then they'll the kids will come in and take qurbana and then go go home you could argue it both ways right there are merits to both ways i think that our kids need to learn to sit through mass and have that discipline to uh, listen to the priests preaching what they're teaching. I think they really need that discipline. And it is discipline. It's med- call it discipline or meditation. I think that's a good thing. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, when it's a, in, in a school format, and I, and I had tried that when I was running the school, mm-hmm. uh, we would take the kids to mass once a, once a, um, once a month, one Sunday mm-hmm. a month. They would sit through mass. But imagine 180 kids trying to be kind of control them using 16 teachers. It was a little bit disruptive to mass, right? But it was also inspiring because people got to see the kids come in in their uniforms and their little scarves and trying to, you know, behave, be their best and sit down and listen. And I don't think at that point, any uh, that many churches had, had the, that many kids present on any given Sunday. It was just inspiring for everybody to see these kids. And when there are kids in church, there's going to be noise. <laughs> you can't control it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can argue really in the North. I think you can argue it both ways. It really depends on what's uh, required by the clergy, how they want to run the school. That's first and foremost. And then what the, what the parents need. And I'm sure I'm sure every community is slightly different. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think either way works, whichever works for uh, that community. So let's go into your role with Safeo Center. If you can tell us what Safeo Center is and what your role is in Arizona here. So Safeo Center, the word Safeo, as you know, is uh, Assyrian for uh, or uh, the Western dialect um, Assyrian for Seta, which is the sword. And Safeo Center is really Assyrian Genocide Research Center. It was established by Malfono Sabri Atman in uh, Europe about, I believe, over two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And um, his focus is basically... Uh, uh, publishing books on Assyrian genocide, various Assyrian genocides. Uh, Unfortunately, we have a lot of them. It's not just one or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Giving lectures, uh, raising awareness, and then uh, doing a little bit of lobbying also on the uh, state level in in Mm -hmm. different states. And the Arizona chapter really has been around for quite a few years. I joined it about mm, just, uh, just over two years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, Mrs. Shmoni Yonadam, who is the um, president of the Assyrian Cultural Organization in Arizona, she was the founder of the uh, the Arizona chapter, and she was the chairwoman. And uh, and I joined uh, two years ago, and uh, we started talking about having a uh, doing some work here, and basically just helping raise awareness on what our people are going uh, through currently and in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. So our focus is basically genocide recognition. And if you want, I can go into more detail as to what we've been doing over the past couple of yes, years. Yes, I would love for you to go into detail on that. So for example, the Genocide Awareness Week at Scottsdale yes. Community College. Uh, Scottsdale Community yes, uh, College. At, at yes. Scottsdale Community College every year, uh, which is awesome that we are kind of a whole week is dedicated to Assyrian Genocide Awareness Week, and we have guest speakers that come in. And your your audience your audience isn't just Assyrian; it's it's as college students, it's you know locals here in Arizona. So that's very interesting. I'd love for you to talk about that, and then also the the proclamation that just came out HRC two thousand six, and Assyrian Genocide Remem- Remembrance Day proclamation in Arizona. Okay, so let's uh, talk about the uh, Scottsdale Community College Genocide Awareness Week. This is a huge program that's held annually, I believe for the past six to seven years. The person who uh, puts it together is Dr. John Lifferton. And this is an annual meeting uh, and a series of lectures and people from different nationalities, with different backgrounds, um, they come and present and talk about their experience with genocide. And really, it is the largest genocide symposium in Northern America. This is huge. This is huge. We have Jewish community. We have uh, Armenian community, Greeks, Serbians, people from Africa. All kinds of people attend. Mm -hmm. And I have to take my hat off to... Uh, the uh, cultural organization. They were the ones who uh, spearheaded the Assyrian community involvement and representation. And um, they had brought really amazing Assyrian speakers. I can think of a few, Nadia Yonan, PhD candidate, and uh, for example, Dr. Nicholas Algilu, PhD candidate, Joseph Hermes, just to name a few. And uh, Safo Center became, as Safo Center kind of took more shape, we became a little bit more active in terms of uh, helping sponsoring speakers or recruiting speakers. Uh, and I believe a Syrian Student Association is also becoming more active. So these are the three m- major sponsoring organizations. And last year, we were able to ask for more hours. Um, so we increased the two hour, uh, we increased the allotted time from two hours to three hours. For this year, for 2020, speakers, but unfortunately, because of coronavirus, it, it was canceled. Uh, but we're, re- we're rescheduling for April of next year. So I want people to be cognizant of this. These are, depending on who the speaker is, the, the lectures are, um, are broadcast on social media. And usually we have a very good turnout, but you're right. The audience are non-Assyrian, and that is our target, target audience because it's enough that we talk about our dilemmas and problems among ourselves. It's a, it's important for us to have more of a civic engagement with, within the communities that we live in and kind of let them know 
who we are and what we go through and how uh, resilient we are. This is what's amazing about the Assyrians, our resilience and our will to fight and stand for, uh, for truth, for truth. So proclamation, again, uh, going back to the work that's done by Sabri Atman and his team in California, worked on genocide recognition uh, last year. He put the literature together by working with various scholars, to name a few, Dr. Uh, Professor Hannibal Travis, who's a genocide expert. And he was able to put this uh, proclamation together and the uh, supportive documentation behind it, which is very strong. And uh, it passed in September of last year at the um, California Assembly. So there was recognition and uh, affirmation that this genocide of 1915 and the Semele massacre took place. And they recognized August 7th as the uh, Assyrian Genocide Remembrance Day. So when he was here in September of last year, he said, look, since this passed in California, let's focus on this and see if we can work on it here in Arizona. So really our work is based off of what he did and uh, the wonderful, wonderful people, Assyrians in California. We really have to take our hats off to them because they made it easy. They worked on it for two years. We only worked on it for six months. It was an intense six months. We had to kind of get uh, a few different uh, representatives and senator on on, um, on board. Um, so it did pass as a proclamation, as a unanimous proclamation, not the type of resolution that you vote on because it wasn't contested by anybody. The, uh, in the, it passed in the House of Representatives, so they recognized August 7th as the Assyrian Genocide Remembrance Day in the state of Arizona. And the reason they recognized it is because of the recognition of the 1915 uh, genocide. Unfortunately, the Semele massacre was left out. We don't know why. We um, wrote to them. We met with them. And by then, by then, uh, it was too late to change it. Mm -hmm. So they decided to go ahead with it in the House as is. But they have, they have uh, informed us that they have every intention of adding Semele back into mm -hmm. the verbiage uh, and acknowledge that. And hopefully at the next legislative session, which will be in January of 2021, we will yeah. have it acknowledged again, mm -hmm. both, uh, well, the 1915 uh, genocide again, and Samantha added. And uh, this is just such a wonderful news for our community. And if I may just explain to people what the difference is between a bill and a proclamation or a resolution, a bill yeah. comes with an action which means that, for example, if, if you decide on an action or something that needs to be executed, that's a bill. That becomes the law. But resolutions okay. and proclamations are affirmation. They're acceptance or acknowledging that an event happened in the history. And it's a way, of, it's a way for us as a community to keep a dialogue going with mm -hmm. our uh, state officials. And because this is still a, an open wound, we will continue communicating with them and letting them know what our needs are. And then we can build on it from there. And the sky is the limit as far as, as I'm concerned, so long as the good Lord is blessing us mm -hmm. and we are working righteously uh, and with, with integrity, uh, we will continue working. We have the support of the community. I cannot, cannot emphasize 
uh, how supportive the community has been here in Arizona and also from abroad in terms of writing thank you letters to the representatives, writing call to action letters, uh, responding to our um, surveys when we ask them to, sharing our announcements. I mean, I am just, uh, I, we're just so blessed. We cannot be more thankful and we have to be thankful to you too, Nenorta, for uh, being our <laughs> MC at our most recent uh, event. You did a You're fabulous welcome. job. It was an honor to be there. I mean, and and just for our listeners that, that weren't aware, so we did have a meet and greet with the legislators and Senate leaders that in the House of Representatives that passed the bill, that helped to pass the bill. So that was a great opportunity to be able to meet with them and hear their concerns because they are supporting us and they are with us and they are very eager to continue to work with us in the future, which is very, very positive. And lobbying is very difficult to do. So my hat is off to you, Dr. Amina and the Safeco Center team here in Arizona to do that work on behalf of the Israeli people in Arizona, because without, without you guys going in, meeting with the representatives, explaining what the genocide is, what we've been through. So thank you for your, for your continuous work and efforts in that as well. Thank you so much. It's an honor for me. So Dr. Amina, you mentioned that you met with lobbyists and did a lot of work to kind of get this proclamation to pass. For those listeners out there in different states that want to do the same thing, issue a proclamation, a certain genocide remembrance day in their states, what what did you do that you can help them kind of guide them into those steps in terms of meeting with congressmen, senators, things like that? Yes. Well, um, Ninorta, here's the thing. I think if anybody's interested to do this in another state, please, please let us know and reach out to us. You can email us and uh, just message us. Uh, we have a very large email list. So our updates go out very regularly. So watch out for those. If you're interested, please respond and we'll get back to you. How about I give them my own email? It's rjajoo, R-J-A-J-O-O at safocenteraz.com. Yeah, so they can email us and uh, we would be more than happy to walk them through. We would be more than happy to provide them with the literature because the literature that we give is is good. It needs Mm -hmm. to be something solid. Mm -hmm. If it hasn't been thought through, I mean, it took two years for Sabri to put it together. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can provide the material for them. And then what they need to do is to go ahead and look up who their representative, state representative, and state senator is. So mm-hmm. they need to find out which legislative district they look uh, they live in. Mm-hmm. And this is the sticky part. They need to call and call and call and call until okay. they get an answer. Once they get an answer, they ask for a, a, an interview. And we can prepare them. We can even prepare them how to present it what what the question is, what are the requirements are, what is the community, what does the community, let's say, in, what is the community in Massachusetts, what do they want, why do they want this? Mm-hmm. And, and just keep the communication, line of communication open. Uh, in talking to representatives, this is what I learned, right? Because I've never done this before, and I was an, an amateur, and I still am an amateur, but only by the grace of God we were able to do this. Mm-hmm. The key thing is persistent. 
persistence because if uh, you give up after a couple of emails or you give up after uh, a um, few phone calls, it's giving up too easily uh, as far as, as I, I'm concerned. It, it took, I, I, I lost count of number of emails that were written. So persistence is important because the, the, the state representatives, they have so many questions thrown at them. They get so many emails and some of them are so, in my opinion, some of them are so unimportant. So they get bombarded with questions and requests and we need somebody who's persistent and, and then take it from there. They take it from there and uh, we can coach them. We can coach our uh, fellow Assyrians if they work with other organizations. I mean, we have, we have uh, similar proclamations that are being worked on in Hawaii and um, let's say in Massachusetts, but we're doing it in collaboration with either individuals or organizations. Yeah. And the more states and the United States recognize the genocide, the better chance that we will have that it will also be recognized on the federal level, mm-hmm. right? Just like That's the Armenians, how the Armenians did it. And uh, the Armenian genocide has been recognized in the forms of proclamation. For example, uh, let's take state of California. It's been recognized at least 15 to 20 times, like every other year it gets recognized by the Senate, by the Assembly, and by the governor. Is this something that you have to reapply or redo every single year or every session? So it doesn't expire. It doesn't okay. expire. <laughs> but, uh, but it's that uh, what I'm emphasizing is that they, it gets passed every year. It gets talked about. So it stays fresh in Got the it. minds of our representatives. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. And I think that, uh, I think that we should do the same. Yes. And I mean, the, the proclamation, the wording, you mentioned the wording and it's, I mean, it's not something that I typed up or you typed up. It's been reviewed by several lawyers, several, you know, organization heads, multiple, multiple people to say, okay, that maybe this word is not right. Maybe we should use this word. So it's a lot of tedious, meticulous work on, on your end up for, for Safeway Center to to help out anybody else that wants to do the same thing in their in their state. Correct. Uh, that is so right, Nanorta. Uh, and even the California proclamation was slightly tweaked for Arizona, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we need to change the verbiage from California State Assembly to state mm-hmm. of Arizona. But other than that, you know, we go into details like how do we say that our com- com- community, the Assyrian community, does com- com- comprise of the Assyrians who identify themselves as Chaldeans and Syriacs. So we need to be inclusive of those people who do identify as Assyrians, though they may use mm-hmm. different words to describe themselves. So, And that, that's where it gets sticky. And I don't know if there is a right answer or wrong answer. And people will, can debate that. We have that discussion going on in our own community. Mm-hmm. But things like that, I really think things like that should not hold us back. Yeah. Because if we don't like the verbiage one year, we can work on it the next year, two mm-hmm. years from now. If the state won't pass, if the Senate won't pass it, maybe we can talk to the governor. So it, it's a, it's it's very fluid. It's mm-hmm. not all, all or none, yes or no, black and white. It's very mm-hmm. fluid. 
And whoever who's working on this, they need to be able to work within that kind of environment. Because if you take a very hard stance, it, it may be, it may get rejected. Yeah. So we absolutely. need to keep that dialogue open. And I think one thing you mentioned is, is building a relationship with the state representatives and the governors and of those areas that you are living in, because it's very open, important to keep that open dialogue. I think the relationship that the Assyrian community here has with the representatives like Nancy Bardo, Jennifer Germain, Frank Carroll, Senate Majority Leader Rick Gray, those individuals are very, very important to us. And we have very close relationships with them. So that's very important. And I do want to also stress the importance of when you do meet with with the uh, state representatives, you're saying, I'm representing the Assyrian community here in, let's say, you know, Texas. And then, okay, how many people, how many Assyrians are in Texas? So that's when the census is very, very important as well. And I know you mentioned those Assyrians that identify as Chaldean or Syriac, and it is okay to put, to write in Assyrian or Chaldean or Syriac when you are filling out the census, because this helps us when we are when when you are meeting with your state representatives and you know pleading your case to them and saying hey there's over 200,000 Assyrians in in Chicago or whatever area it is and we're not just making up a number it's a fact you can look it up in the census so yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely i couldn't have put it better myself census is absolutely vital to the work that safe center does Mm-hmm. That's the first question they ask. How many Assyrians live in Arizona? Really? Okay, good. Oh, oh, yeah. How many live in Arizona? Where do they live? Where are they concentrated? What is it that they want? What are they going through? In fact, we have a whole survey uh, right now. Safe for Center Arizona chapter has a whole survey on that, that hopefully it should be published in the next couple mm-hmm. of months. But please, please, everybody, yes, do fill out the census. It, it'll be filled. Uh, no matter what, you're going to be counted. Yeah, you, you might as to. well be. <laughs> you might as well be counted correctly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to come to you eventually, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. The final question to all of our podcast listeners: What is one thing that you would say to all of our listeners? And we have listeners world worldwide. You know, Ninorta, I just I would like to just have give one quick message to our community out there. I want to tell them to to keep the fight going and not to give up. And particularly, my message is to the young generation of Assyrians that are growing up here in U.S. And I I hate to say it, but it's really a self-imposed exile, right? Some of, we're we're in exile because we're not in our homeland. Some people say we we'll live in diaspora, but I think of it as exile because. We had to leave our homeland. We had to uh, leave our country. So for those of you who grow up here, I want to thank you. You guys are amazing. You have a very different outlook on life, and you guys are fearless. That's what I love about the youth growing up in, uh, in America, in Australia, in Canada, in diaspora. You guys are fearless. And uh, our role as the older generation is to just be your safety net. We need to let you guys do what you do best and then be there for you in case you need us and be your safety net and uh, and not hold you back. I see that a little bit happening in our community. I've seen it in Australia. Uh, I've seen it here in Arizona. But keep at it. 
wonderful Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use and don't forget to share, rate, and review us. See you next Tuesday.